This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. Jose Antonio Vargas is a journalist, filmmaker, and immigration rights activist. He, he authored articles for the Washington Post about the Virginia Tech shootings that won the 2008 Pulitzer Prize for breaking news reporting. In 2015, he was named one of Out Magazine's Out 100, and in 2017, he received an honorary doctorate from John Jay College of Criminal Justice. In a 2011 essay in the New York Times Magazine, Jose revealed his status as an undocumented immigrant in an effort to promote dialogue about the immigration system in the U.S. and to advocate for the DREAM Act. His memoir, Dear America, has already received widespread acclaim. Edwidge Danticat says of the book, Quote, it is a daring and honest book that perhaps so many undocumented citizens wish they could write about what is gained and lost by living in the shadows. You may not know where he will be when you read this book, but his story will stay with you always. Tonight, Jose will be in conversation with Jonathan Capehart, who writes for the Washington Post's Postpartisan blog and is a contributor for MSNBC. I'd like to thank you all so much for coming. Please welcome Jose and Jonathan, everyone. Um, thank you all very much for, for coming uh, and being here, for buying Jose's book. If you haven't read it already, uh, I guarantee you, you will <clears throat> excuse me, be taken on a, a very intense journey. And I think um, the best way to start this, since you all basically know the ending, it's very important to start at the beginning. And in the, in the uh, prologue, if you have your book already, turn to page XII. And he writes at the end, after 25 years of living illegally in a country that does not consider me one of its own, this book is the closest thing I have to freedom. And when you read the book, that, that paragraph will become clearer and clearer. But Jose... Congratulations on your book. Congratulations on a, a powerfully written book. And I want you to take everyone to that day when you came to the United States. Uh, thanks, Jonathan. Um, there's so many people in this room that I love. It's a little bit hard to look into the room uh, because I've been hiding from many of you for the past seven years. It's kind of a theme of the book, but I guess I'll get back to that later. So I'm gonna follow Jonathan's advice. Um, so this is the beginning of the book, which is structured in three parts, lying, passing, and hiding. So this is the beginning of the lying part. Everything about the morning I left the Philippines was rushed, bordering on panic. I was barely awake when Mama snatched me from bed and hurried me into a cab. There was no time to brush my teeth, no time to shower. It was still dark outside when I arrived at Nino Aquino International Airport. For reasons she wouldn't explain, Mama couldn't come inside the terminal. Outside, Mama in introduced me to a man she said was my uncle. In my ragtag family of blood relatives and lifelong acquaintances, everyone is either an uncle or an aunt. After handing me a brown jacket with a Made in USA label in its collar, a Christmas gift from her parents in California, the grandparents I would soon be living with, Mama said matter-of-factly, baka malamig doon, it might be cold there. It was the last thing I remember her saying. I don't remember giving her a hug. I don't remember giving her a kiss. There was no time for any of that. What I do remember was the excitement of riding in an airplane for the first time. As the Continental Airlines flight left the tarmac, I peeked outside the window. I had heard that my native Philippines, a country of over 7,000 islands, was an archipelago. I didn't really understand what that meant until I saw the clusters of islands down below surrounded by water. So much water embracing so many islands, swallowing me up as the airplane soared through the sky. Whenever I think of the country I left, I think of water. As the years and decades pass, as the gulf between Mama and me grew deeper and wider, I've avoided stepping into any body of water in the country that I now call my home. The Rio Grande in Texas, not too far from where I was arrested, 
Lake Michigan, which touches Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, and Michigan, states with big cities and small towns that I've visited in the past few years, and the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. I'm the person who goes to Miami and Hawaii, with some people in this room, without ever going to the beach. When people think of borders and walls, they usually think of land. I think of water. It's painful to think that the same water that connects connects us all also divides us, dividing Mama and me. I left the Philippines on August 1st, 1993. I was 12 years old. And that's how the book starts. And as he said, as Jose said, he structures the book, lying, passing, hiding. Talk more about, about the, the lying. How much lying <laughs> did you do? Which, the, which slides nicely into, in, into passing. But um, how, much, how much lying did you do? Like what kinds of lies? I think a lot of it began with knowing um, the lie of being brought here. Right. Like when I found out that I was here illegally when I was 16, when, you know, I say that in the book and I kind of explain how that happened, um, that my grandparents lied to me about why I was coming and that they had paid a smuggler $4,500 for a fake green card. Uh, that was when kind of the lie started. Um, what's interesting about that moment was, I guess my grandfather thought he gets me here. Um, and, you know, he couldn't petition me legally because you can't, grandparents can't petition grandkids. It's not allowed. And my grandfather, this was the beginning of the lie, my grandfather lied on the form um, about my mom being married when she was really uh, single, when she was really married. So she couldn't come here. So therefore, he smuggled me here. But the plan was I would marry a woman to get papers. And until I found this perfect Julia Roberts woman, <laughs> just kidding. Because uh, <laughs> you said to your grandfather when he made that suggestion, you marry, marry a woman, maybe you'll fall in love. And, <laughs> and you said, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. And I told him I was gay. So that was like the first kind of why? Because I didn't want one lie. I didn't want one more lie. Like one lie was enough, right? And the fact that he was just expecting me to lie, you know, any, there's a lot of Filipinos here I'm seeing, um, you know, like, like Catholicism is like default and gayness is not accepted. And so it's interesting when I was writing the book, like the fact that I actually told my grandfather, who's like a walking, you know, playboy, um, <laughs> he was, God bless his heart, he's up there somewhere or wherever he is. Um, uh, you know, like that was my own way of kind of, Declaring my independence. Right. You write in the book that um, being gay, coming out as gay, that that was a way of you exerting control yeah. over a life that you felt there, you had no control over. It was, the, and you know, I, I wonder what would happen if I hadn't come out as gay to myself as early as I did. And if I hadn't grown up in a community where I could do that. Right. I grew up like an hour south of San Francisco. It's it's kind of high school where they show a documentary on Harvey by Har you know a documentary on Harvey Milk, and then when I moved here to DC, I I realized that that was that was not normal <laughs> that a high school would show a documentary on, on on Harvey Milk. So I grew up in a community where people were accepting in that way. So that was one of the lucks, right? As you in the book, like you'll see that there are a lot of lucky things that happened and people that I was lucky enough to have met that kind of provided a space for me to to exist and to, and many of them help lie, help lie for me, allowed me to pass and kind of hid me. Um, I, I want to read this little, this piece of, from the class, because it, oh. it was almost like a, a moment where you just blurted it out because Mr. Farrell oh. had just shown the class a documentary on Harvey Milk. He was just beginning the class discussion when I raised my hand and told my classmates, I am gay. Some of my classmates turned around. A student named Anna started to cry. I was like, <laughs> she told she told the class about her gay uncle. And then you write, even though I felt how uncomfortable some people were, I remember feeling quite comfortable, as if I had opened a window and let some light into what was a very dark room—the room inside my head. 
You know, it's funny because when I came out as undocumented, 12 years later after that, people were like, there was another closet? (laughs) (laughs) The classmates were like, why didn't you say anything the first time around? (laughs) Uh, Because I figured they could only handle one thing. You know what I'm talking about. Like, people can only handle one thing about you. They, like, cut you into pieces and they're like, okay, I can deal with that part, but the other part, I don't know. Um, So, yeah, and... Anyone here who's familiar with the hiding about anything or being in the closet about anything, you know that at some point you got to get out of it. And, at the, you know, I spent about a year and a half being in two closets. And a lot of young people here. Imagine being in these closets and not being able to Google it or hashtag it or find people. Can you, you even imagine that? Can you imagine that? Young people. Which, <laughs> which is why when I hear from, like, you know, uh, young undocumented people who feel depressed and feel alone, I remind them that they have each other. You know, when when I was going through this, there was nobody. I, you know, and whenever I thought of telling anybody, there's a young woman here that I've known since she was in middle school, Ariel, sitting over there. Her older sister was like one of my best friends. And I actually remember, because I was like driving Miss Daisy in high school. Everybody drove me around, right? Because I couldn't drive. And Natalie, her sister, drove me around a lot. And I remember I wanted to tell her once why I couldn't drive. But the moment I would tell Natalie, I would make her, I would implicate her, right? And so I didn't. So like, those are the kind of, you know, decisions that you make. Like once you tell somebody, then you make it theirs. And I think there's many people in this room that didn't know I was undocumented, even though I knew them deeply. And that's because I felt that the moment I tell you, then I'm burdening you with this. And that wasn't fair. I mean, it was enough for me to handle it, much less give it to you and then expect you to like hold it and be like, yo, I don't want this hot potato. Get, get it out of my hand. Well, let me let me push back on, okay. on, on, on you on this. So you just said just now, oh, I can handle it. I didn't want to push that on somebody. But I, anyone who reads this book <laughs> will read that, no, you couldn't handle it. You couldn't. That's right. <laughs> so um, this is only my third book tour stop, FYI. And I'm already starting to sense. Because <laughs> um, this is the cost of all of this. You know, we're in D.C. Like, so immigration reform, bipartisan, all the things that you hear on CNN, MSNBC, and Fox. That's not what immigration really is about. This is what immigration is about. This is how fucked up this whole thing is. That it's a 37-year-old man. I don't know what happened to me. <laughs> like, I literally wrote this book to make sense of what the mental state of my mind is, of, of me, and uh, figure out what the toll is that this takes on people. When I was writing the book, it happened at the same time when those kids were getting arrested at the border. And I, you know, in the book, I write about being detained in the same jail cell as the boys. And I would just look at the photos on television or on the internet, and I try to imagine what they would be when they're my age. (laughs) Like, how they handle this. And you know, I'm a relatively, quote unquote, successful person, whatever that even means. And if I can't handle this, you're right, I can't. But I think I've been trying to pretend that I can. And, And it wasn't until I wrote the book that I realized that the fact that I can't handle it is why I've been hiding from my friends, <laughs> many of whom are sitting. There are some people in this room that I literally have not seen since I came out as undocumented seven years ago. Because I don't want you to have to see how hard this thing is. Like I never, I never prepared, like I didn't know what it was like to be a public person where people just hang things onto you like you're a Christmas tree and everybody's hanging an ornament, right? And then you're supposed to carry that around. and. So it's been really tough that way. So the book kind of, I didn't realize until I was writing it that I had also been hiding from people, even though I'm not hiding from the government anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, we met when we were both at the Washington Post. Yes. And you were, my, my immediate remembrances of you there was like, oh my God, here's this guy, he's... He's so warm and funny and nice and cute and just a joy to be around. And reading this book, I realized I don't know him at all. Um, And that was by design. 
that was by your design. You have a whole cha chapter on, well, you write about intimacy or the lack of intimacy on purpose yeah. because when people get close, they ask questions. And when they ask questions, the lie yeah. that you discovered in high school would start to un unravel. Yes. And then naturally, it was my friend who said, you're really good at distant intimacy, <laughs> right? Like you get people all warm. You give them, you give them an Audra McDonald CD because <laughs> I love Audra McDonald. Deborah Hurt, my boss from the Washington Post is sitting there. I gave you that CD, <laughs> right? You make, you know, like you make people feel like you're letting them in, in your life, but really you're kind of going, okay, that's it. I'm done. <laughs> right? So I spent all of my twenties doing that. And then again, I thought I'd come out as undocumented seven years ago. I would rid myself of that. But no, it got worse. <laughs> it literally got worse. And, and then I, you know, Jonathan and I were just talking in the back before we went out here. Part of that, part of that is because how hard activists are on each other. You know, how hard all this wokeness thing is. And how the spirity tests that progressive people put on each other, that you're never enough, that you're never radical enough, you're never doing enough, you're never saying the right thing enough, you're never, it's just this constant, it's, it's ironic, like we're supposed to be proving our humanity while at the same time robbing each other of our own full humanity. And so that's been really exhausting, like having dreamers, you know, young undocumented people who would say to me, you know, why don't you tie yourself up to the White House and like, you know, do a hunger strike? Um, because that's just not my style. That's not what I, that's not who I am, you know, or people who say that I'm not radical enough or, you know, in the book, one of the hardest parts to write about, I'm sure Jonathan, you noticed was when um, an undocumented day laborer said to me very early on in this process, when I first came out as undocumented, said to me that, um, you're too successful to represent us, like you can't, uh, and, and then, you know, I, I heard myself say, um, you know, I'm, I'm only here to represent myself. And then I heard him say, although he probably didn't want me to hear it, you're not even Mexican. And I just, the thing that I remembered most was being in the Washington Post newsroom, which is a very competitive newsroom, and having a lot of, no offense to all the white people in this room, having a lot of white people look at you like, what are you doing here? <laughs> Thankfully, I don't know how this happened. I put this in the book. Thankfully, all the black women at the Washington Post, just like- All of them. All of them. They're written in the book. Deborah Heard, Vanessa Williams. <laughs> Marcia. Marcia Davis, Lynn Duke. You, need, you know, like, I don't know how that happened. Maybe they saw me, they're like, oh my God, this kid is in trouble. <laughs> right? Like, so- the fact that I existed there and then I got out of that and then I joined this thing and all of a sudden I'm not enough either, that was really, you know, sad. Well, we jumped ahead. Let's, let's come back because you're undocumented. You find this out in high school. A lot of people, I would suspect, would rather just sort of shrink into the shrubbery and not do anything that would make them be noticed and yet you go into journalism uh you put you you <laughs> write for the local paper your name it, your name is right there jose Anton antonio vargas i think L lola my, my, yeah my grandmother your, lola, your, yeah yeah your grandmother is like what are you doing why are you doing this it was part of the rebellion, I guess. And mind you, it wasn't like journalism was a thing. Like no one in my family was a writer. The only reason was my name would be on the paper. That was literally the only reason that my name would be, which is ironic, now it's in a book. Um, my name would be in a newspaper. But then that, with your name in the newspaper, it wasn't just, I want to see my name in the paper. Having your name in the paper meant that you were real. Yes. That even though I wasn't supposed to, according to the government, I wasn't supposed to be here. Like, I'm right there, yo. <laughs> like, I wrote this story, I interviewed the people, I researched it, I wrote in English with pretty good grammar. You know, like, so I'm there. Like, how can you, but then it's interesting, I'm sure you notice this when you're reading the book, like, as I get deeper and deeper into my career, especially all those, the five years I spent living and working here in DC, which were the, pussy, the 
which were the Bush years, were probably like the toughest years. Because, um, you know, this was post 9-11 security where you can't enter a federal building without an ID and thinking thinking that someone was going to, it was like, it was like, catch me if you can in a really twisted, mixed up with a telltale heart by Edgar Allan Poe. I mean, it was literally like, whatever I saw the Washington Monument, I just thought it was this phallic thing just poking at me. And then I couldn't bring myself to go. I remember one time I was assigned to cover something at the Smithsonian. I was so paranoid that I didn't want to go into those buildings. You wrote that you've never been into any of the museums <laughs> no. because no, you didn't feel like this city I was yours. I did, I did go in when it was the inauguration after Barack Obama won. Don Graham held a party at one of the Smithsonian things. You know, Don Graham, who used to own the Washington Post, invited me, and I just like went in there and I like got out. <laughs> it was just, you know, that kind of paranoia. Mm -hmm. um, but Jose, you had this paranoia when you got to the Washington Post, but you you showed balls in getting to, to the, the Washington Post. Post. So you were offered, correct me if I'm wrong, there is a job at the Philadelphia Inquirer or a sub- The Daily News. The Philadelphia Daily News where they asked you if you had a driver's license. And I lied. You, I said that I did. You lied. They didn't check. They didn't check. They hired you. Uh -huh. And you end up getting around covering your stories by doing what? I was hitchhiking. <laughs> I hitchhiked to homicides. <laughs> I know. There was no Uber, FYI. No Uber. The SEPTA, which is the subway system in Philly, wasn't all that great. Um, thinking, you know, you got to do you know, in Tagalog, we have a saying, uh, we have a saying called kapit sa patalim, which means hold on to the knife. You just held on, <laughs> right? And again, every, the young people, um, <laughs> you couldn't tell anybody this, you know, like you just, it's not like I was like sharing this with people or there was like a group chat <laughs> where I can be like validated with a thumb, you know, a thumbs up, a thumbs up. I'm saying all of this because it. I just want you to remember that whatever it is you're going through, at least you have each other, right? Like back then we couldn't, there was no one else. So yeah, so that's what I did. But it's funny that you think it's ballsy. I never, I remember when I came out, um, when I came out of the, you know, about being undocumented, originally the essay was supposed to run in the Washington Post, right? Right. Yes. Um, I was going to get there, but go on, tell, yeah. tell the story. And uh, actually the first person I called about it was David Remnick at the New Yorker. I had just profiled Mark Zuckerberg for The New Yorker, and they were wondering what my next story was. And I said, oh, I have a story. And I called David Remnick, told him what was, told him what the situation is. And he just sounded completely uninterested and hung up the phone. So I emailed Catherine Weymouth, who at the time owned the Washington Post, and said, this is what's happening. She got on the phone. She read what I sent with a lot of empathy, said, let's do this here. Um, and then it was too long of a story for the op-ed page. So he, she brought in Marcus Broccoli, who was the editor of the paper at the time. And I'll never forget talking to him the first time. And he tried to convince me that it would be better if a reporter reported what happened to me. So he, would have, he wanted to assign a reporter to write about my life. Because, you know, how do you trust a liar? <laughs> right? It's true. I understand. I mean, look, journalists are supposed to have big, you know, bullshit detectors. And I'm sure all above his head is like bullshit, 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 bullshit. Um, but that was really tough, right? It was tough like that he was like, I don't trust you. And I said to him, if I'm going to do this, I have to write it myself. Then he let me do that. We reported it, we reported it, reported it. I had a couple of editors assigned to it. And then, um, do you want to... Should I give more details? Or? Well, I was I was going to say that you wrote it. I wrote it. And then Carlos Lozano, Lozano, uh, yeah. Lozano was a, an editor. Then yep. there was another person who not just fact-checked. Re-reported. Re-reported everything that, you, that yes. you wrote. She talked to my grandmother. She talked to my principal. Just to make sure that everything I was saying was really right. Right. Yeah. And it was all set and yeah, ready, ready to, to go. go. Yeah. And then Marcus Brackley called and said what? He said, we're killing it. And that was all he said. <laughs> and I emailed Catherine Weymouth, who's a lovely woman. I emailed Liz Spade, who was the managing editor, who was friendly to me. 
I emailed and nobody said anything. Nobody responded. Nobody. Carlos Lozada, a wonderful man, you could tell how pissed he was because he had been working on this. You know, as an editor, he was so tough on me. He wanted to make sure that everything was really right. For example, here's one little thing. You know, I, I'm like a, I talked to a lot of lawyers and my lawyers were worried that the moment I come out, how am I going to get around? And the only form of ID I have then, which same thing now is a driver's license, which expired. So I had to get another driver's license. Was that the Oregon driver's yeah, license? Yeah, so the Oregon driver's license expired a little. I'm such a journalist. I have to say this. The same year that Oregon made marijuana legal in 2014 is the same year Oregonians took away our right to drive. Isn't that amazing? I mean, I'm happy that you all can get high in Oregon. Um, congratulations. <laughs> but, you know, the 180,000 undocumented Oregonians, can they drive while they, like, you know, clean your houses? <laughs> but I just want to say that. Um, so... That license expired. I got a Washington State license in Seattle, but I didn't tell that to Carlos Lozada. And so he was like, why didn't you tell me that? Well, my lawyers didn't want me to tell you that. Well, Jose, this is not a time for your lawyer. It's time for the truth. And so we put that in the story. And I think that's what made the editor nervous. Um, so they killed it. But thankfully, the New York Times was more than happy to have it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it came to them completely edited, ready to go, just with no... <laughs> ready to go. Fact check, ready to go. Brought to you by the Washington Post through the New York Times. <laughs> through the New York Times. Um, and Anne Gerhardt, who had worked so hard on it, was so pissed um, after it was published. But yeah, so that's a little bit inside journalism. But, you know, as I'm sitting here talking about it to you, it's actually not inside journalism. It tells you a lot about... It tells you a lot about power dynamics in newsroom. It tells you a lot about privilege. It tells you a lot about what happens when, you know, look, I mean, when I was working there and then after, after they killed the story, of course, when the New York Times published it, the news media people here were like, why did the Washington Post kill that story? So they had to write a story about why they killed it. And then there were people that I admired in the newsroom who started saying, really, you know, he can never be trusted. The fact that I remember this is sickening. I remember reading the article. Like, I was actually crying because I was like, yo, that was my home. I slept there. And like, there were these mentors that I thought were mentors or people nice to me who thought that I was maybe too ballsy. Maybe I was aggressive. I probably was. Um, because I was just trying to survive and make it. But look, white people are bossy and ambitious all the time. So like, not all the time, but you know what I mean? So like, <laughs> if they can be that, why can't we be that without being looked as quote unquote, you know, aggressive and overly ambitious? Can I ask you a question? Um, because in reading, the, in reading the book and you write about how um, one of your teachers said, you ask a lot of questions. Mrs. Dewar. You should, you should be, be a, a journalist. journalist. <laughs> you yes. ask a lot of questions. So you go into journalism. And the thing that stood out to me was that you write about how you ask people all these questions. You're delving into their lives while hiding from your own, while keeping people at a distance and not revealing anything about yourself. Um, which is what journalists aren't supposed to be the story, which is fine. But I wondered if the other reason you gravitated towards journalism is that because reporters aren't supposed to be the story, that that repertorial distance yes. is there as well, that you can, you can deflect and... Um, Say to people, no, 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 this isn't about me. This is about you. Or I can say, oh, no, no, I don't answer questions. I ask them, <laughs> right? I ask you questions. I don't answer them. I'm really good at deflecting. Someone said that to me the other day. You're really good at, like, yes. Mm -hmm. um, He's like, yes. <laughs> yeah, yes. All right, there, there's, there's so much to talk about, and I'm, I'm keeping tabs on the time because I want to make sure that we get to Q&A, especially since you have, wow, there are yeah, a lot of people, a lot of people here. Hi. A lot of people you haven't seen in years who <laughs> might want to ask questions, other, other folks. You deal with a lot of a lot of things in this book that I try. I want to hit on real quickly. Um, being a teenager in Cal uh, um, in California, and noticing that in the United States, the racial dynamics they're black and white. Yes, and there's no there's no room for you. There's no room for Latinos, and it 
manifested itself in the OJ trial where you write that (laughs) the black students were cheering, the white students were disappointed, and the Asian students and Latino students were looking around trying to figure out, well, who do we, where (laughs) Where do we go? I would argue that we're still at that moment. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> and some people go one way, some people go the other way. Yeah. <laughs> and another thing that you write about is you came to the United States with this vision of the United States was Julia Roberts Baywatch. and Baywatch. Oprah. And it didn't occur. I'm not going to remember this and I'm not I'm trying yeah. not to fuss through all my notes. But you write that you didn't realize that certain people were black no. until you got here. No, because in, you know, again, there are a lot of Filipinos here. Whitney Houston is like a rite of passage. I think every eight-year-old can sing I Will Always Love You in karaoke. <laughs> we never knew. We No one told us she was black. Like, no one said that. Like, we I just mean, had you seen her? Yeah. No, but, but I mean, but I mean, in the Philippines, of course, like any colonial country, there's colorism. But we didn't have language for it in that way. It wasn't white or black. They were just Americans. So it wasn't until we got I got here that I was like, oh, that's what that is. And that's what that is. And as you know, in the book, like, you know, I'm. If I hadn't read the Bluest Eye when I was in eighth grade, <laughs> right? And like, I tried to understand why Toni Morrison wrote that book. Like, it kind of it created this space for me to question, as Mrs. Dewar said. I like asking questions, right? So that was in eighth grade, and a year later, I found out I was here illegally. And so that was like, well, question. Well, wait a second. Like, why? Why is that? Um, why are certain people legal and why people are not legal? Um, and then this idea of who created these laws. Like who created these laws, right? Like in the book, <laughs> my lawyers didn't see the book until after I wrote the book. Uh, there's a, well, you know. I mean, that's a, okay. Uh, uh, so I wrote a whole chapter about breaking the law. And then after I wrote that, chapter, I followed it up with a chapter called The Master Narrative um, about why I gave myself permission to break that law was questioning what it was. And some people will say, oh, I have no respect for the law. If I didn't have respect for the law, I don't think I would have publicly revealed this. I would have just kept on lying. I do respect the law, but I think we ought to figure out what it is first and why it is what it is. We have to interrogate it. Um, so that's kind of what I've been doing. And, and didn't you wrote you write in the book that it was African American authors yeah. who gave, gave you permission yeah. to and that's the word to permission. question question America, question the United States, question the go, the, the government and what yes. it's doing. Question like when when they said freedom, did they really mean freedom? When they said equality, did it really mean all people? Um, and that's why Baldwin and Morrison, Ralph Ellison, like all, and, and, and the thing about that too is when I was growing up, you know, African-American literature then led to other kinds of literature. Like Sandra Cisneros, for example, I would not have discovered her if I didn't go to the ethnic side of the library, <laughs> right? Or Carlos Bolosan, the Filipino writer. Actually, the epigraph of the book is Carlos Bolosan, who's, um, Filipino, the first Asian, the first person of Asian descent to be published in the New Yorker in the 1920s. Um, people don't really know, you know, we, we don't know that many Asian authors, right? So it kind of, it, 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 it led to this other space where you can question what the master narrative is. Um, and that's why for me, like one of the, one of the biggest issues we have to deal with in this country right now is when we say solidarity and intersectionality, like what does that really look like? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, if, if you're an immigrant in this country who came after 1965, the reason why you were able to come is because of ni- the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Basically, the, the act that let immigrants in this country was built on the back of black struggle, right? And so if you have like anti-black relatives and parents and aunts and uncles, <laughs> you better educate them that the reason they were able to come here was because of that. That was, for me, was really important to say in the book, given the debt that I owed, you know, all of those writers that I read when I was young. I should point out that when the piece that the Washington Post didn't run, that ran in the New York Times, uh, ran, you, um, you write 
the moment my 4,300 word confessional was posted online, Define American was, was born. born. Yeah. That was June 22nd, 2011. Yeah. Um, since then, as you write in the book, you have been, you gave up that big, massive loft, what, Los Angeles? It was amazing, yes. You, you gave that up, and now you, you don't technically have a home. No. Or have things changed since the book nope. came out? No. You are so still no. I mean, I have. I mean, this book tour is going to be pretty crazy this fall. So I really don't know, and I think I'm giving myself permission to be okay with the fact that I don't know where I'm going to be. Like I wrote this book. When you read it, you're going to wonder about the structure and the form. I wanted to capture my own sense of displacement. Right, the fact that I literally wrote it at Airbnbs and hotel rooms and at friends' couches and at friends' living room. It's kind of part of the rhythm of the book. Um, I wanted to capture that myself. And then the long sections are the ones that was written when I was on a flight from the West Coast to the East Coast or the East Coast to the West Coast. Um, and now, especially with this book tour, um, you know, thankfully, whatever happens to me, Define American still exists. Actually, one of the co-founders of Define American um, is a man named Jake Brewer, who some of you may know. Um, he was my best friend. Um, we... He passed away three years ago, yesterday, and his mother, Wednesday, and his mother, Lori Brewer, is here. Um, sorry. <laughs> but So thankfully, this thing that Jake and I built together um, with a couple of other friends, whatever happens to me, I, it's, it's going to last. Like We have now built this thing um, that transcends our own identities and is trying to unite people. I want to get to questions, um, but I'm going to take moderator's prerogative and read a lot of stuff. Okay. But I want to say to, I didn't realize this was um, Jake's mom, yeah. Brewer, but that part of the book where you're writing about your friendship with Jake was probably the most personal um, that you get. Like yeah. it was... If you had not written that, you know, he was straight and, you know, the whole thing, I would have been like, wow, like he actually no, allowed no, himself no, to no, no. to actually love somebody. And the powerful moment in the book is when you write that you were doing your thing, pushing people away, and Jake came to you and yelled at you and said, you can keep pushing me away. I'm not going anywhere. And yeah. then... It was the next day or a couple of days yeah. later that he passed away. Um, I I'm going to read this last part, and it's on page 229, chapter 12, called Truth. At 37, I am a year older than she was when she dropped me off, she being his mom. She dropped me off at the airport on that hurried morning. I told her that since that morning, I've always been hurried, that working on this book is the first time I've ever allowed myself the space and time to feel, and that I'd been feeling lost and alone. When she asked me where I was, I said I was staying at a hotel. I told her I had no home at the moment, no physical space of my own, no permanent address. Maybe, Mama said, her voice growing fainter for a moment. Maybe it's time to come home. So two questions. Because I wondered, in this coming at the end of the book, it was like even more profound for me. What is your relationship like with your mom? You haven't, I mean, you, I think you said you FaceTime with her, but even doing that, it's, it's just it's more we, and more, uh, dis you have not physically There's seen no her. context. Right? I mean, you're going to say, how was your day? Okay. <laughs> like, um, usually I talk to her because um, we have now actually bonded over my sister because she's worried about my old, my younger sister. When I left the Philippines, she was a year and a half old. She's now 20, um, almost 27. And I have a brother who's 21, half, who I haven't met. Um, but they know me because I'm the one that sends stuff. Right? Like any immigrant, anyone from an immigrant family knows that. Like remittances, right? We send in the Philippines, we like buy in box, which is like a repatriate box. And I fill that with stuff and I figured I fill it with stuff and that's all I have to do. Um, you know, when I got the first copy of this book two weeks ago, um, 
I ended up going to the FedEx and I just, she got the first copy of the book. <laughs> and I think it's only fair when you, when you read that last part of the book, which um, took a lot to like really thinking to figure out how am I going to end this thing when there's really no ending. There's no ending, right? So I thought it's only fair that she got the last say. I thought it was only appropriate that the last words were hers because I don't make sense without her, right? Like, I don't make sense without the choices she made that led to the choices that I'm making. And I also wanted to open up an entire conversation and the undocumented people who are here tonight understand this, that we actually have power. That if you decide to leave tomorrow, right? Like right now, the popular hashtag in the immigrant rights movement is here to stay. And I've heard from so many people privately who feel really pressured by that. I probably have heard from at least 20 DACA recipients who have decided to leave in the past year and a half. Like leave, like because they, it's just too much. And they decided that they can't live their lives every two years waiting for the president tweet about what he's gonna do with DACA. And they usually contact me because they feel guilty that how can they leave if I stay? Someone like me stays. And the only thing I could really say, the only thing I can come up with was, you can carry America with you, right? And the fact though that you have a choice, to me is agency. I think it's important to know that. If I decide to leave by December, that's on me. And I think I'm, I'm also saying that to remember the fact that I find it incredible. Historically speaking, the only analogy really is the 1920s, right? In terms of how anti-immigrant this country is. Um, and even then, you know, those European people have all melted into this thing called white, right? And people of color who are immigrants now, as some of them try, but it's, you can't just really melt into whiteness. Um, so this question of leaving in home, you gotta own whatever that is, and it's okay for you to do that. So I wanted to mm -hmm. signal that. As you write, being American is no guarantee. Just ask Native Americans and, and African Americans. Absolutely. So final question. Your, your mom says, maybe it's time to come home. So given your last answer, yeah. have you ever entertained leaving, oh, yeah. going back to the Philippines, yeah. or just leaving the United States. And then knowing that I probably could not come back. I have yet to see Mississippi and Alaska. It's going to happen this fall. So then I would have seen 50 states. Uh, the closest I get to a foreign land for me is Miami and New Orleans. <laughs> I go there quite a bit. I love it because I feel like I'm in another place. So I don't know. I really don't know. And I want to be open with the fact that I don't know. Mm -hmm. And again, thankfully, Define American is going to stay because we have now built it where I'm not the only leader. Our executive director, Ryan Eller, is sitting right there. We have an entire team of people. This young woman that I actually met at the Washington Post when she was in high school, um, Noelle Stewart, her mother is here. Uh, she's now with our team. We have a whole team of people. Please check out the website. I really am proud that as an undocumented person, I can have an organization and employ people and provide them good health benefits. Yay. Even though you can't. Even though I can't get it myself. Um, but, you know, the fact of the matter is this, I've always said that this was bigger than me, and it is, but now I got to go take care of myself. And I'm sure all my friends who are sitting here, they're like, oh my God, he is a mess. You know, and I'm going to go take care of myself and... You know, I owe that to myself now. And the other thing too is, I don't owe anybody anything else. I don't need to prove anything to anybody. I don't need to earn anything. And I don't even need to earn the citizenship that many of you take for granted. I'm already an American as far as I'm concerned. I'm just waiting for my own country to recognize it. That's the best way to lead to, to Q&A. Um, oh, there you are with the, please raise your hand, wait for the microphone because we're recording this and short questions and short answers yes. and then we can get a lot of people in. Okay, I'm gonna make a long story short then. Okay. Um, um, so I'm born and raised in Philly 
And three years ago, I interned at the Philadelphia Daily News. And my first day on my internship, Gar Joseph said, do you know who um, Jose Antonio Vargas is? And I said, no, I don't know who that is. And he was like, you remind me so much of him. But wow. he was like, you need to look him up. And I looked you up and I went back. I said, Gar, what you mean? You, I remind you of this guy. I said, <laughs> I, said, I said, Gar, first of all, I'm like born and raised from the projects. Um, I'm growing up in Philly in the hood and this is my first internship. He got mad posters, like he's getting money. I don't understand what you're talking about, right? But I did the whole internship. And my last day there, um, they didn't hire me. And I, I was crying. I was telling Gar, I was like, I can't even believe they could. They, I'm so Philly. They should have picked me. They should have picked me. And he was like, you remember what I told you, right? He was like, we slept on Jose too. And now look what he's doing. So he told me, he said, what are you going to do now? I said, I don't know what, I'm going to die in Philly. Like I have nowhere else to go. I never saw another part of the world in my life. So he was like, well, all good reporters, they leave home. And then eventually they come back. So he was like, you have to pick somewhere. And I was like, well, I guess I'm going to go to D.C., right? <laughs> wow. So, so, so. And you're here. Yeah, now I'm here. So, okay. uh, wait, wait, real quick. Okay. So, <laughs> so um, I had I'm a. I'm scared of this question. Oh, yeah. Where is so, this going? Oh, yeah. Let her ask it. Let her ask no, it. So, this is good. So, um, my friend had a room in D.C. She's like, you come live with me. I sold my car. I didn't have anything going for me. And I was struggling. It was getting hard. Like, my first month here, I was like, I'm not going to make it. I'm going to just go right back to Philly. Right? And I told Gar, I was like, you know what? I'm not going to give up. I was like, I'm going to start grinding so hard that they're going to have to accept me here. And people, I would interview with certain companies and they're like, you picked the wrong city. Like, this is a political city. You cover local news. I said, no, I picked the right city. And then I just kept telling myself, I remember what Gar said, if he made it, then I could do it too. So, um, yeah, so that's how much I relate to you. So when you said um, right now you don't know, right? Because you don't, you're sleeping in, Airbnbs, you don't even know where your life is nice going. Nice Airbnbs, too nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I didn't know where my life is going either, you know, and I still don't know where my life is going. So how do you manage to stay so positive? Oh. Oh, um. Thank you very much. That's a great question. Yeah. Uh, well, the, the easier answer is this. Um, Baldwin said, I cannot be afford to be a pessimist because I am alive. Right. If you're a pessimist, that means life is nothing but an academic matter. So I am forced to be an optimist. That's one answer. The second answer is, um, especially after writing this book, I am very clear to myself. <laughs> like I actually make more sense now to myself. Now, I don't know what the country thinks about itself, but she's going to have to go or he's going to go fix that. And so long as I have that clarity... I feel like at least I can walk the ground and not feel like I have to hide in the shadow behind me. So that's why. Thank you. Another question? <laughs> Hi. So um, as a DACA recipient, I get a lot of pressures about getting married, especially from my parents. Oh. They're like, okay, let's get these papers going. And I'm like, um, I'm 21. I'm still figuring out my life. This was back when I was 19. So ever since your grandparents brought it up, the marriage thing, and you're 37 now, do you still like feel those pressures? Do you ever just wonder like, can this next partner like be the one? Like I'm just ready. Or are you still like, I'm still going through that where I'm like, you know what? I'm just gonna continue to do my path. like go where I'm going as undocumented. I don't care anymore. How are you feeling about all of that? And actually, that raises a good question because marriage equality is the law of the land. So forget about finding a nice girl. What about a nice guy? So I have, an, I have actually an easy out in a way because th this is why lawyers said that I should not admit in the New York Times everything I had to do. And one of the things I had to do was lie about being a U.S. citizen, right? So in the employment form, I checked the U.S. citizen box which is the biggest offense you can do, you can make. And because of that, even though I can marry a man, adjusting my status is not possible because I had already admitted to the fraud, unless I'm granted immunity. And we don't know what that means. So meaning it's not an easy, it'd be a different question if it was actually an option that I could adjust my status. But the other thing, as you will know when you read the book, 
there was just, <laughs> you know, I don't do that. <laughs> he really doesn't. <laughs> I'm not going to read it directly. I will tell you, he, so he met this nice guy. And the nice guy, they went on a couple dates, dinner dates. And the guy invites him over Valentine's Day. The guy makes dinner. Um, he gave you a book of Neruda, Neruda poems. poems. The whole thing, brother man. Go. I think you went into the I bathroom. Left. You know where I and went? And then he left and said, "I'm sorry, I can't do this." After taking the first bite, and he bounced. And Come I went on. to Quinn's house. Quinn is sitting right there. <laughs> Sorry. He's and, Quinn's hiding. <laughs> and Quinn was like, what are you doing? Go back. And I'm like, no, it was too late. You know? And so that, that's what I do. But you know, I was 33. I'm 37 now. I know more. I'm better. I'm clearer. Uh, <laughs> and I got to go figure it out. I'm going to figure it out. Okay. Like, you know, 37. It's not that bad. It's adult, adult, but it's not, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've got oh, it. Oh, you've got Oh, you've got it. Okay. <laughs> I stole it. But you're getting it next. I yes. promise. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Oh, Great to what's see you. Up? We're actually kind of related. <laughs> He's married to Ariel. But go ahead. <laughs> um, so I hadn't really thought about this before until today, even though we've been following you forever and whatnot. Um, it's just a funny, it's a crazy irony that the country that is in the name of your organization, you must have this really strong love-hate relationship because it's like the place where you're a prisoner the place that won't accept you is the place that gave you an opportunity to become a pulitzer prize winner a famous journalist i mean look at this like you know it's just what is what do you come to love love hate hate resentment <laughs> you know it, it's just a really weird place to be with how you feel about where you are it's that, and I think it leads a lot to um, what makes it bearable is that I have the power to actually question it, <laughs> which is why when Jake Brewer came up with the name, he came up with the name, Define American. We were like, you know, thinking of other names. And the most important part of the name is the question mark. That's a dangerous question mark. <laughs> we didn't say Define American, period. We said Define American, question mark. And the fact that I can live in the country that would allow me to question that, I think that's pretty beautiful in its own twisted way, right? And when you look at the history of this country, I have been recently revisiting a lot of Frederick Douglass um, letters and just biographies. Well, he's doing really well. <laughs> yeah. People are talking and, about him more and more. Um, I th next year, I think, is celebrating his 20th, ber uh, 200th birthday. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really amazed. That's why when everybody here, who whatever you're facing, undocumented DACA, find comfort in, like, history, right? That they survived what they survived, right? And and that they had the, the, the internal, not just fortitude, but belief that they can question it, that they can make it better. And I, I really hold on to that a lot. You write on page 221, to, to your point, you, you write, it occurred to me that I'd been in an, in an intimate, long-term relationship all along. I was in a toxic, abusive, codependent relationship with America, and there was no getting out. Yeah, <laughs> it's only been three you days. You don't have the book yet, but you will. Right? It's only three days. You Hi. Hi. So I have a question. Throughout the past hour, you've been mentioning how, like, now we have technology and yeah. all these like forms of camaraderie in a way. Yeah. Um, what do you have to say about the people that don't feel like they can lean on their friends hmm. to talk about their? undocumented status and don't can't have that open conversation and those hashtags and those yeah. thumbs up um and how can their documented friends support them so i have to plug this thing that we have this thing called the define american chapter program <laughs> so we have 60 64 chapters across the country mostly colleges and the model for it is actually gay straight alliance clubs right or it's mostly U.S. citizen kids with their undocumented friends or immigrant friends. So if you don't, if you, anyone here go to college, please check it out. Go to defineamerican.com if you want to start one in your school. Um, but to your question, 
friendship to me is like, especially because I've had to find my own family in a way, like uh, friends are sometimes become your family and choosing them, <laughs> investing in them, which is why I've been so afraid to, um, especially the past seven years, how um, I'm sure a lot of my friends feel completely abandoned because I've just totally just gone. Some people have had, you know, babies. Some people have gotten married and I'm just like nowhere to be found. Sometimes they get a text. Um, and I feel bad about that. And this is my own process of doing that. This is a long way of saying that you got to find your people. You just got to find them and be really, be really disciplined about who you, who you let into your life. Right. And the support system that you're going to need, because you're going to need it. You know, you're going to need it. Um, and if it doesn't work, then you keep going. But just remember, again, you have choices, right? You have choices. There's a, um, <clears throat> another portion in your book, page 110, under the chapter 30, where you write, I run away from people, especially people who want to get close. I run away from myself because I've never felt at home, because I've never had a real home. I've organized my life, so I'm constantly on the move and on the go. Since my life has changed, since since my life has changed, that one morning in an airport in a country I left to go to a country where I've built a life that I've not been able to leave. In your book, it's just page after page is about being in this situation, having left one situation, being in another situation where you're not even able to leave it. And yet you're sort of conflicted about being in the whole thing. Um, it is 7.59. We've taken a lot of questions over here. Justin, how much time do we have? Uh, we could do another couple questions. Another couple questions from over here. <laughs> Great. Hi, Jose. My name is Maria Ibarra, and I'm actually from the Rio Grande Valley. Um, oh, so, arrested. Hi. Yes. Um, I was actually uh, part of Minority Affairs Council. Yes. So Y'all saved I, me. <laughs> Uh, a bunch of people did, not yes. just us. Um, but I wanted to touch up on a little bit, saying that you know you you can't you said that you don't you're not living that people have told you that you're not living up you know to the expectations of the dreamers yeah. and like the dreamer movement. And I just wanted to say that I think just you going past the checkpoint right to the south was a huge act of radicalness because um, I feel like a lot of dreamers wouldn't really do that or people who are undocumented, right? Because it's very risky. But I currently attend Carnegie Mellon University mm -hmm. and I'm studying public policy and management. And you also talked about questioning narrative. And I find myself very torn between assessing policies that are going to be, you know, that are uh, that are uh, data driven, right? That are going to have all these impacts. Yet we often forget a lot of the times about the experiences. And one of the reasons why I decided to study public policy is because I know as a DACA recipient how policy can affect your life every single day um, with a single tweet. Um, so can you talk a little bit about narrative and the creation of narrative and how that might impact? That is, that is where we live. That is the work literally that we live in. So y'all are in DC. Um, since Reagan was president, this city has not been able to pass any sort of meaningful reform. The closest we got was DACA, it's temporary. And if people here don't know what that is, just to kind of really contextualize it, DACA recipients have to pay the government $500 so the government doesn't deport them. If you were to go around right now and ask people if you would pay the government $500 to not deport you, I bet you a lot of Americans would take the $500 and go to Tijuana and I'll see you later, <laughs> right? Like that to me is, we have to big people understand what that means. Um, so for us at Define American, there are a lot of people doing policy shift. A lot of people focus on the lobbying of policy and politics. That our job is how do we create a culture in which people's actual experiences and lives drive the policy, not the other way around, right? Like we live in a country, I don't know if you all know this, there's only 12 states that allow us to drive. Thankfully, this area is pretty good at that, right? D.C., Maryland, Virginia, Texas, 1.8 million undocumented people in Texas. How are they getting around, right? Like if you – never mind immigration reform for now. If you were to give people driver's licenses, ID that says their name on it, that would already provide a lot of relief. Why aren't we not focusing on that? 
Why are we not focusing on how we get churches? You know, Ryan actually is a faith leader in, in Louisville, Kentucky. And for us, faith is cultural, right? There are many people in this country who the church is the only place where they can feel like they belong somewhere. The biggest part right now of the work that's, again, modeled after the LGBTQ movement is our work in Hollywood. So right now, we consulted on maybe 40 film and TV projects, like, for example, Grey's Anatomy. Um, after DACA, after Trump said he was getting rid of DACA, Shonda Rhimes reached out because she's amazing. And she said, how can I help? So we sent undocumented medical students to her writer's room, and they built an entire episode on Grey's Anatomy on that. Why Grey's Anatomy? Because in this country, TV show you watch is a greater indicator of who you voted for. And Grey's Anatomy is one of the top 10 shows for Trump voters. So right now in LA, did you know that? <laughs> Neither did I. <laughs> so right now, right now in this country, right, how television shows, how the news media, right, how they portray immigrants, and I'm really sad to say this about my beloved Washington Post, but the Washington Post regularly quotes anti-immigrant groups without actually naming them as anti-immigrant. I cannot wait to send a letter to Marty Baron in the next few days to talk about this, to talk about sources, like, and how we contextualize sources. Um, so that's the work that we're doing to shift narrative. So we, we have to do both. They can't be an expense of each other. They have to work coincide with each other. Last question. And this is the last question. Oh, no pressure. <laughs> Hi, my name is Grace. I'm Mexican. I'm undocumented. Um, and I feel that a lot of my story is like yours. I also don't have a relationship with my family. I've been on my own since I was 16. I was an unaccompanied minor when I crossed the border. And so now I'm here in graduate school. And I feel like very emotional with your story because it, it pretty much resonates on every single aspect in relationships and pretty much everything. And so now that I'm getting here and I'm like trying to go up you know, trying to get to the cusp, I'm finding that throughout my life, I've had to spend so much of my energy surviving, as you stated, that I haven't been able to actually even succeed as some of my peers. Um, I see yourself, I see a famous poet Yosimar, you know, Gaby Pacheco, yeah. we see Astrid Silva, we see other, you know, dreamers that are trying to take off on these projects or, or trajectories, but yet I find myself just still hustling to pay my phone bill, you know, to pay my rent, like a lot of undocumented and documented people, and not just that, but also dealing with our mental health, right? Mm -hmm. So as uh, a so final say, I guess, what is it, what tip would you give us to like, number one, continue your resilience, but number two, how would you, because how would you tell us to just continue on the path so we could have your success and sharing our story so we could also help those that are coming behind us? Um, first of all, I really want to acknowledge all the undocumented people that have shared their stories, and I hope people here hold space. <laughs> um, so I'm going to say that. Um, you named some people. Yosemar was our artist in residence at Define America, and Guy Pacheco is on our board of directors. Um, I, that actually has been a saving grace, is meeting other undocumented people who I can be in network with and feel like we can share what we're sharing and share resources. Sharing resources is absolutely essential, right? And as you were talking, I kept thinking up here, what resources are there for mental health services for undocumented people? How many millions of dollars have we spent trying to pass immigration reform and how little money is there for any sort of therapy or any sort of actual just help? So I implore anyone here who works in immigrant rights movement to really challenge their own organizations on that, right? Um, and that's something that at Define America we're trying to work towards, so please, we, we can talk about that privately. But I feel strongly that, especially at a time like this, that's really important. Because you know what that does? And for me, you know, I was lucky that I had a lot of mentors. They were the ones that kept telling me that I had to keep saying yes to myself. I had to keep saying yes to myself, right? And that's what mentorship, Ryan and I were just talking about this, Professional mentorship is another missing opportunity, 
right? Like I, in my own, you know, because of what I do, I've mentored, for example, Yosemar now for like five years, right? And a few other people, but I can only do so much. I think all of us need to figure out what kind of mentorship programs can we do? Um, I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm seeing Jonathan Jace Green who's right over there with the Undocu Black Network. Um, phenomenal, phenomenal leader. Um, what I find really also optimistic about is that there are people like Jonathan in which we can really connect with each other. I have to tell you, if all of our identity groups can't see it within ourselves to connect with other identity groups, then we're in real trouble. If we only use our identity as barriers, right, and not as like bridges to each other, then we're in real trouble, far more trouble than anything that the, that the Trump administration is gonna do. So if you're with the Black Lives Matter movement, the Me Too movement, the, the, you know, the LGBTQ movement, the immigrant freedom movement, all of us need to figure out in what ways can we work together. So, thank you. And with that, Jose, in just an hour, I think we only scratched the surface of everything that's in your book, what you wrote about, um, there's coming out as gay, coming out as undocumented, lots about journalism, lots about activism. There's also writing in there about trust and the faith in the goodness of people and the relationships that you allowed yourself to have with people. There's a lot of talk about race and about white people and about this country and how we got to where we are right now. I want to congratulate you on your book. It's, it packs a punch. It's powerful. The fact that we've had this conversation for an hour, once people go and read the book, they will, they will soon discover that the conversation we had was like a highly concentrated version of what they're about to read. And the name of the book is Dear America, Notes of an Undocumented Citizen by Jose Antonio Vargas, winner of the Pulitzer Prize. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.